out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Esau. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, we have all the way from New Zealand, the Valaines, because I spoke to Graham Downs very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to the interview and talked about those early formative years. Um, And also just a few things. Um, They have got a new album that is coming out this October 2020, which is going to be available from all good bookshops, record shops, and online probably as well. And also, just a little bit of word up, I'm in Norwich, the UK. This is in New Zealand somewhere. Um, There is a little bit of an odd noise at the beginning. Um, It does sound like someone either... Um, snoring really I think that's the only word I can use so it's a bit of a strange kind of sound but anyway you know that's life it does fade a bit but I do realise that you might hear what is that noise but anyway I don't know what it is and it doesn't really matter really because it's quality chat and I have to say Graham's a very intense guy so do listen out to well listen to all of it because he does he does hot up a lot as, as the interview goes on and he has a lot to say and it's fascinating so make notes I will test you at the end Graham Tell us about your formative years. Well, I was born 62, a couple of years earlier, but I, I, I guess because I was pretty musically hot-wired, although you don't know it at the time, but you find out later, um, it's really the 60s. I mean, because I was a radio junkie from from when I can, as far back as I can remember when I could crawl and toddle. Yes. And, um, so, you know, I was, I was listening to Motown and Baccarat tunes and the Beatles all the way through the 60s as a child. Yes. Um, and, well, sort of carried on through the 70s up to a certain extent. Uh, I discovered classical music when I was 11, so early 70s, and I kind of, like, forgot about popular music for quite some time while I started you know, ingesting the Bucks and the Beethovens, etc. I mean, that's quite, um, that was quite sort of developed. Do you have any other brother, older brothers or sisters who gave you any influence or were your parents at all musical? Um, yeah, well, I've got an older sister and a younger sister, not particularly musical. Uh, my dad used to play songs to us on a Sunday evening. He had a repertoire of about four or five uh, Harry Belafonte songs and whatever. He used to play them on a nylon string guitar and sing. And that was pretty kind of uh, inspiring from a very small age. Yes. And in fact, most of the early songs I wrote were on my dad's guitar, which I inherited. Um, my grandmother was um, played piano. Uh, on one side. So, yeah, there's a bit of music around, but nothing kind of highbrow or serious. But, yeah. No, but, um, and did you, I mean, because I was a little bit too young for the punk movement, to be honest. I was, you know, it wasn't something that kind of happened. And also during the 70s and probably in, into the 80s, sometimes if you sort of wanted to hear a record, it wasn't always that easy because, you know, you couldn't just kind of quickly stream it or download it or watch it on YouTube or Spotify. So it was sometimes difficult. Did you, I mean, was in your sort of environment that you were living, did you have kind of access to being, you know, in, 
uh, getting hold of music and I just wondered if the, <laughs> if the punk movement had at all sort of yes yeah. passed you by or, or were you able to sort of access that? No it was it was here um, you have to realize that in New Zealand it's a long way away from the northern hemisphere and we had one pressing plant for vinyl in a place called Petoni, which is a suburb of Wellington. And it took years. I mean, Ian Curtis was dead before Joy Division hit New Zealand. Right. That, that's the time, that was the time lag back then, you know. Um, we had a video show on the one TV channel that we had, the one state-run channel in the late 70s, early 80s, that, you know, so you could see Love Would Tear Us Apart and whatever else, but um, actually buying the record, took a while yeah so you know punk in britain happened in 1977 there's a seminal album of auckland punk bands and it's called ak79 auckland 79 because yes. that's when it really hit was two years later because that was the lag time yeah anything from the northern hemisphere getting down here and, and gaining any kind of traction so yeah i mean i was whatever, 17 when that happened and, and all those bands were, were pretty big and that's what we listened to at parties and that's what yeah. we kind of I mean, I know aspired to. You know, okay, so I'm from the UK. Or two things here. One is that I come from sort of Norwich and East Anglia. So, you know, we, even though London's only 100 miles away, it still feels like things do take a long time before they really have an influence in little places like you know, the East Anglian region, you know, we are still behind. So there is a little bit like you, it doesn't feel like it kind of gets here that quickly like it does, you know, possibly if you're in the other side of London. So it's kind of an interesting one. But also, I mean, and this might be one of those irritating things to say, but you, you know, there were bands like, I know this is a different country and, you know, my future job is not brilliant, but, you know, did bands like The Saints or Radio Birdman, were you kind of conscious of them because they're, a little bit more kind of in that area? Me personally, no. I mean, and that's, just, that's you could speak to somebody else and they'd go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I mean, my, my musical attention has always been pretty split between classical music and, and popular music. And you only end up having so much time to devote to, yes, to sort of delving into things. And so there, there are vast swathes of bands and music that I know nothing about and because uh, I just haven't had the time. Yeah, well, absolutely. It's always, always one of those ones. So look, so we had punk sort of 70, 75, 76 to sort of about 78. And then, you know, there's that post-punk period with, you know, like people like the Gang of Four magazine and Peel and even the Nightingales and the Fall, you know, a bit more jarring. And then sort of indie started to come in around 80, 81 with, you know, like Orange Juice, Echo and the Bunny Men, Simple Minds, U2. I mean, you're, you sort of formed the band sort of quite close to the beginning of the decade, didn't you? Yeah, sort of 79. We never really did any serious gigs until 81, really. Yes. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I mean, again, you're talking about New Zealand, and so it's kind of, and, and even within New Zealand, you're talking about Dunedin, which is way down the bottom. And so 
the major influences were not Northern Hemisphere bands. It was the bands that you could see in your own town. So you'd go and see the chills or the clean and go, oh, that's how it's done. And you'd kind of go away and, and start experimenting yes. along those lines. And, and, and then away it goes, And which is part of the reason why the Dunedin thing has such a is because it's relatively uninfluenced. It, it's little trickles of bits that came through from the Northern Hemisphere in America. Um, but also that time lag thing meant that it was just not a fashion thing. Yeah. You know, punk came along, that didn't mean that you just threw away all your Bob Dylan records. <laughs> because you, you're jumping on the new bandwagon of what was hip and what was now. It's kind of like, well, no, it doesn't work that way, you know. Um, you know, I think Shane Carter said it best. It was a good song when you wrote it. It's probably still a good song. And, <laughs> and you know, that that's it, you know, is that we? I think we, we rather tenaciously clung on to the the record collections that we had and the things we thought of value from the 60s and the 70s and punk was just another thing. It wasn't kind of like a bandwagon and jump on, be all in and, and wear safety pins through your nose and all the rest of that yes. rubbish. I mean, we just kind of like carried on and dressed as normal, but we wrote songs and we turned up at pubs and we played them, you know. And and so, and, and people like, you know, Martin Phillips and the Clean and the Bats, were they, was that a hugely important part of the kind of musical fabric for you and narrative? Well, I wouldn't be here talking to you now if it wasn't for the clean. Uh, they came and played at our high school in my final year. And I was kind of frightened by it. It was very <laughs> freaky uh, and very loud because I'm just a classical music guy. So... But it kind of dawned over a period of time that, hey, you know, you're into literature, you like to write words, and you're interested in composing, and here's a medium whereby you can strap a guitar around your neck and do all of that mm. all by yourself without ever having to kind of like, well, you know, you're going to write a symphony if you want to, but no one's going to want to play it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, it just kind of like it happened Yes. Because of the example that they set, which was, you know, you can be in charge of your own artistic destiny. Um, and, you know, you, you don't need money. You know, and that's what, to, you know, rock bands to me are just poverty. It's the cheapest <laughs> way for an individual or a group of them uh, to make a racket according to the vision in your mind without having to hire a concert hall and an orchestra. Yes. <laughs> and be poor at the same time. And be so, poor at the same time. Well, the poverty goes along with it either way with it, you know, that's another story. <laughs> Going back to what you mentioned earlier, the lyric, because you mentioned Burt Backrack, didn't you? And, and, and obviously, I sort of one of the most important bands in my life were the Carpenters, mainly because the lyrics were so important and seemed so melancholic and beautiful at the age of 10 that it stayed with me. So, so obviously, I was going to love Joy Division and the Smiths and anything else in that matter, manner. And then, you know, then I just kind of heard, you know, Joni Mitchell, Blue and Supporting Spark and the Hissing of Summer Lawns and a bit of Van Morrison and, and Carole King. Did, was the lyric particularly something that you always gravitated towards? Um, 
Yeah. Um, again, it's kind of a childhood in the 60s. I mean, I do a radio show on Radio New Zealand every month, and the last couple of them have been doing some country tracks. And so, you know, um, and, and they are really, they're tracks from the late 60s through to the 70s. And, you know, um, I remember the year that Clayton Delaney died, you know, it's kind of like, it's a really good story. It's a really good story. And, you know, Tom T. Hall is a great storyteller and, and you know, Willie Nelson and Dolly Parton and all these, these people and Johnny Cash, the, a boy named Sue, you know, they're, they're really incredible documents in terms of cutting right down to the quick of the human condition and help you understand what it is to be born into this damn place, you know. So, yeah, <laughs> that was lyrics. Yeah, very important. I mean, and, you know, my late high school years, I was, you know, we were reading Yeats and Shakespeare and, and you know, that was just kind of like a revelation. Um, and I was discovering Dylan at the same time. So, you know, having having something to say and the courage to say it, it's kind of like it's pretty important, you know. Yes. Um, and it, and it, to me, it, it spans across the genres. Um, I did, you know, and did, and and when you mentioned Dylan, obviously, there was like the Beat Generation with people like um, Jack Kerouac and then Alan Ginsberg as well, and and various other people, Neil Cassidy. Was was the was the um, the beats from the San Francisco scene? Did that sort of also sort of creep into your consciousness? Not really. I borrowed a copy of one of Kerouac's books from Martin Phillips, and only got a few pages into it and stopped. I mean, but that's that's life, you know. You pick up a book if it doesn't spin your wheels, then put it down and pick up another one, you know, because yes. was enormous and your time's limited. Um, uh, I, I I got into a beat poet, but a Russian one, Yevgeny Yevtushenko, um, and um, who was a huge cultural icon in the 60s because he, he went to America and he'd pack out halls reading his poems in Russian and <laughs> whatever. But I mean, that was through Shostakovich's music. Yes. Because he's he set a bunch of his poems, so I got interested in him. Um, but I mean, you know, beat poets, hippies. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, how far back do you go? I mean, you know, a high school teacher introduced me to Herman Hess. So I was, you know, at 15 or 16, I was reading, I read Siddhartha and then went to the library and read everything that he wrote. Yes. Um, and, and of course, that's all in a line through well through Nietzsche to Heidegger to you know all you know it, it's all connected they're all connected in terms of worldview and self-becoming and all the rest of that yada yada stuff which is probably quite unfashionable these days but yeah um, I mean just trying to make sense <laughs> of being born into this, you know, is kind of like a, it becomes a, something of a, of a passion. I mean, it's, it's very easy to just 
let everything ride and just do what everybody else does. But if you're not satisfied with that, then it becomes something of an addiction to read and an addiction to try and teach yourself how to think. And from that, lyrics come. And so other people's lyrics are really important too because there are other people's efforts to make sense of being born into this crazy thing called existence. So, <laughs> Yes, it gets quite existential really, doesn't it? <clears throat> uh, uh, yeah, so... it does. <laughs> Yes, it's so 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 as as the because in in the sort of the very early eighties, I mean, okay, this is the UK. You know, Thatcher got in seventy nine. Then we had Reagan as well. And then we had sort of Green and Common. There was a lot of kind of issues. There was the Falkland crisis. There was also the miners' strike, and there was a huge amount of unemployment in the UK at that time. And so a lot of bands formed because they were just kind of there was no particular employment for a lot of people. So it was almost like a, a not a career progression, but going to, being unemployed wasn't such a big stigma and there was the enterprise allowance scheme and, and where you could just kind of basically be a year sort of getting unemployment but they would take the number off the record so it didn't so it look so bad for the government but that gave uh, the people a lot of um i yeah, know it's a good one that they gave, oh, that sounds they gave, very, I was very say, familiar <laughs> it gave people that opportunity when you have a certain age of thinking well actually this is great we'll just put down we're a musician or an artist and, and off we have a year but then that created quite a lot of bands at that stage and and quite interestingly you know that alternative scene did sort of blossom very much from that that period and then sort of 83 came along and that was when the smiths appeared so from 83 to 85 the indie pop world of that that type that we loved some of us um really sort of blossomed and and so what was because it was a few it was kind of the mid 80s when your first album Hallelujah came along. Um, did it take a while for you to get your sound of the band together? Um, you know, because it was like about three or four years, wasn't there? Um, yeah, well, we did the Dunedin double in 81. It came out in 82. And then we did Death and the Maiden single. And then we did 10 o'clock in the afternoon, which is a six-song EP. And then we did the Doomsday single. and. Oh, I can't remember. And then we did Hallelujah. I mean, a lot of it was financial. I mean, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot of money, but, you know, like 10 o'clock in the afternoon, we, you know, we used to gig. We were all at uni. So we had a kind of like a living allowance wage to yes. be at uni. So when we gigged, we never spent it. We just put it in the bank. And we did, we actually, we still do that. We collectively, it's a very big family, the Valens family these days. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and so when it came to Hallelujah, we were starting to earn some serious money um, playing university circuits, what was called the orientation circuit. And so, you know, we had close to five grand, and that was enough to make a record. Yeah. At a proper stu at a sixteen track studio, and um, and we had it. You know, we planned. I planned. I mean, we had about eight days to record it and mix it. And every hour of every day was planned as to what was going to happen. This is when the French horn player is coming in. This is when the <laughs> cellist is coming in. This is when I'm going to do the vocals and this is the two days or well, day and a half that we're going My to do. My God, who this. was the project manager on this? Me. <laughs> so you really managed, yes, it was like a building project, wasn't it really? 
No, no, yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's the budget. This is how much the studio costs per day. Yes. You know, um, at, at reduced rates because that's, you know. But anyway, that's that was it. You've, you've got this many days to accomplish this record. And, and you do takes and go, well, we're out of time. That one will have to do, you know. Yes. Um, all the way down to, to tape costs, you know, back in the day. Well, we've only got two reels of tape. You can't do an endless <laughs> like you can in digital if, to try and get the best tape. You've got this much tape, and if you if you, if the tape's no good, then you record over it. Yes. It's like that all the time. So you, you go, well, I think that's good enough. Move on, you know, and that's the way that it was, which, I mean, Hallelujah is an amazing record. It really is. I mean, it, it's been reissued in the last four or five years. In fact, Jane, Robbie, and I played the damn thing live. The only time we've ever played the whole eight songs live in a concert in 2016, I think it was. Um, and it's astonishing. It's an astonishing journey. And it's an astonishing record in terms of the where on earth we found the the preparation and the method and to get it done for that much money and that much time. Yes, and obviously Flying Nun, the label, must have been so important to the to the kind of musical fabric of, of kind of New Zealand, really. Yeah, well, it's, it's a strange beast. It's always been a very fraught relationship it's 40 years old next year which is kind of miraculous that it survived that long um but yeah it was in, in the early 80s especially it was it was a pretty good thing i mean and they were they suffered from complete lack of money as well and you know just about went bankrupt about four or five times and you know Yes, David, David and Hamish's mum, I think, bailed them out one time with a loan. <laughs> you know, but it was a, a we're all in this together type of thing. And it was kind of, yeah, I know you don't you don't even have time to, to do the paperwork to work out the royalties. That's OK. Don't worry about paying them it's just as long as the records come out. You know, it was that kind of. And as long as the artwork was as good as the what we thought was the content on the record. Yes. You know, so hallelujah is a gatefold, you know, you know, we thought, well, we think our, our music's as good as Don Juan's Reckless Daughter or Blonde on Blonde or the Hissing <laughs> Summer Lawns. And so yeah, you should put the album inside a gatefold with the lyrics and the credits in the middle. Nice. And lots of artwork, you know. So that's what we asked for. And they went, yeah, okay, let's do it. Yeah, that's quite fantastic. And that must have been, yes, that must have given you a lot of confidence. Now, I'm not sure, what was your touring schedule like? Did you sort of, you know, because I know with Martin and various people, they all sort of had to trundle over and live in England for a what long, a certain amount of time or London. Did you ever make a, a move to, you know, go elsewhere or did you stay in New Zealand? Uh, all of that stuff with Martin and the Chills happened in the sort of later 80s. I can't remember when he went, when they relocated to the UK, maybe 
88. Yes. Um, we kind of their interest was in, was came from Europe. Our interest came through the United States because um, Homestead put out uh, Bird Dog, which is a second full length album, and it went to number four on the college charts or some damn thing. Um, and so they just got back going, hey, this is going really well. Have you got any other records? Well, yeah, we've got Hallelujah and we've got some Disenchanted Evening by then and we've also got Juvenilia, which was the compilation of the early Dunedin Double stuff. And so they re released one of those about every eight or nine months. Yes. 87, 88. And they all went pretty well. And that facilitated the ability for us to do our first tour there in 1989. And then we signed to Slash 91 and we toured there. And, and then again in 93, we toured again with Buffalo Tom, which also took us to the UK to do a few shows. Um, but, you know, I mean, gosh, that's kind of like hardly putting a dent in anything coming to the UK and doing five shows. No. Um, so yeah, it all it all came to a head for us and the Chills and the Straight Jacket Fits as well because they were trying to conquer America and they were signed to Arista around the same time. So yeah, well, you know that's kind of when it happened. Um, and did you first... feel that you were sort of on a bit of a musical zeitgeist at this point? Because obviously, I mean, it's probably difficult at the time to really appreciate it, but but there was kind of a that did feel like there was this kind of movement that was yeah. kind of happening. And again, you know, there'd been like Orange Juice and Echo and the Bunny Man, Julian Cope, then the Smiths appeared, then the June Brides, the Go-Betweens, the Chills. You know, there was just a kind of a moment where there just seemed to be so much kind of amazing music of a certain indie type from indie labels. Well, I mean, I don't know. I can't speak for anybody else, but I just, was trying to do the thing that I was doing, irrespective of whether it was fashionable, um, and trying to grow and progress my abilities with this thing called music. I mean, I was through that period. I was doing my undergrad, and then I was doing my PhD in music. So, you know. I, I, so I was just doing what I felt was the right thing to do musically. And if people liked it, then all well and good. But I certainly wasn't aware of a zeitgeist or something that I was clamoring towards trying to make that might be saleable on the basis that that was what was happening now. Yes. Which, of course, it wasn't. I mean, you know, the, the wonderful thing, of course, the 91 tour is that we drove around the United States playing various places uh, I never got to see Nirvana, but we got to see their tour bus several times. Because, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> never mind, it just broken. And, of course, that completely changed the entire landscape of music and, and sort of jangly pop from New Zealand wasn't flavour of the day. You know, grunge was in and every record exec in LA was heading off to sign up the, the last unsigned grunge band in Seattle, you know. Yes. But that, that's kind of like, it, that's stayed with me forever is that, that fashion is just a forget it, waste, you're wasting your time because it's here and it's gone anyway. And, you know, 
Um, and it still it still comes down to the quality of the songwriting, you know, because you know I'm preparing a radio show <laughs> in a couple of weeks on "Smells Like Teen Spirit" because it's the 30th anniversary next September of when it came out. But it's the only song of that era that anyone's going to do a 30th anniversary celebration of its existence because yes. it's an amazing piece of work. So uh, you know, jumping on a bandwagon. What's the point, you know? Have your artistic vision, learn the tricks that you trade from the best people that you possibly can come across. Yeah. And, and 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 sort of at the time, did you sort of feel very not consumed, but did you sort of feel that you were also growing growing as an artist as well during that period? Because obviously putting um, I was gonna say product, but you know, putting out the final product <laughs> you know putting that finishing the album putting it out there is different than just thinking about it and doodling in your room you know actually having it exposed to a wider you know the public you know and then sort of having to let go of that having the sort of feedback sort of reflecting on it and then bringing the next album out and writing and producing that and creating that did you yes I was just wondering how you were sort of feeling with your this you know your own creative journey at that stage um Well, it was kind of like joining the real world. You know, we put an album out on Slash, Ready to Fly, and it, we toured it, and it sold a certain amount. And they said, well, you know, it got lots of good critical acclaim. It didn't sell so much. doesn't matter. We got lots of good press, so we need to build on that. Uh, so go home and write another album's worth of stuff and have the demos on my desk. By the end of the month. Now that's a, that's a serious wake up call of now you're in the real business, you know. Yes. Um, it took me four months, but I wrote the thirteen songs for Way Out Where in, in that period of time. We demoed them and sent them off, and then we went to LA and recorded them and whatever. And and it's a pretty darn good record, I think. Um, but yeah, you, you do get you you gain insights that you just couldn't possibly get from New Zealand, from Dunedin. We're, we're you know we're operating in a void, and you just wrote the songs and then recorded the songs to the best of your ability and the, your financial ability, and you kind of released it, and that was kind of it. And then you carried on, but once you're actually in a serious northern hemisphere environment where there is a a culture industry yes. to speak of. Um, then it completely changes your mindset. So, in a way, I be I became a professional, <laughs> um, which is, yeah, if you're going to do this, you get up at six in the morning and you start work, and you finish at six o'clock at night, and that's how you work on music. You know, yeah, you don't sort of faff around, kind of waiting for inspiration to hit. You know, you work and you work your ass off. And so that was, you know, that was great. And just, you know, that was a, a formative experience which has driven everything else that's happened over the last 27 years in terms of continuing to create in between the odd sort of, you know, you have, have periods where uh, you're fallow yes. or other things in your life take over. But when 
when you start creating again that work ethic that I learned from operating in the United States kicks back in really quickly. And it's if you're going to do this, you know, it's go hard or go home. You know? <laughs> it's, it's really that simple, you know. How many people are in their bedrooms making stuff and putting it up on Bandcamp, you know, gazillions of them, you know. Yes, hundred million songs to be to be downloaded in the in the world. Maybe ten million of them are and the other ninety nine. You know, are, are never downloaded by anybody. You know, so it's it's a really it's a winner take all. Or the fact that we're even here talking. Yes. <laughs> Kind of like which you know, I've been doing this for 40 years and I continue to do it, and yeah, so I'm a survivor. And if I'm a survivor, it's because what I invested and what I wrote still actually kind of holds some meaning and hasn't just kind of like evaporated with fashion and time. Just going back to one particular song, you know, which I was uh, listening to quite a bit, it was um, Jesus, What a Jerk. Did that, uh, <laughs> which is a catchy little number, great title. Did you get much flack for that, by the way? Because it's quite. No, none, what's, none whatsoever. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's in the mists of time, I can vaguely sing the tune. And, know that I was quite in love with it for a short period of time um, you know I don't know I mean very very conservative time I mean I think I was probably the first New Zealand artist to sing fuck on a song and joked out and you know we came to do a video for something off the record and the people and it was all through television New Zealand state run BBC more or less equivalent oh no can't do that can't do that oh well we better do pyromaniac instead but you know so it was again kind of green and ignorant you know <laughs> you know if, if some of our best poets like Hone Tufare can use the F word in one of his poems and why the hell can't I in a, in a pop song, you know, why can't I swear, you know, and, and it was kind of like in a complete vacuum of rules, then you just made your own rules. Um, and that song was pretty self-deprecating in its own way anyway, so it wasn't talking of him so much, just using the, the slang, yes. as it were. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of because obviously the the one thing that's kind of often quite tricky for bands, and I think it's kind of mostly they have a five year narrative, and you know, in the, okay, in the UK, they have they get together, they have twelve months, they get a single, you know, they give it to John Peel, he gives it a play that which is good, that gives them a John Peel session, then they get a bit more tour in the first album, the second album mm, can be a bit tricky. If any bands from the UK ever seem to tour America, they come back sort of broken and and sort of that's the end of them. Um, but you managed to sort of survive much longer than than a lot of bands. Was did you you know how were you coping with the dynamic and the and the sort of like dealing with the you know the business side the creative side the kind of relationships within the band itself um well i've been lucky i mean roger shepherd wrote his biography on his you know life with flying nun and i got invited to some book festival in christchurch and which was just a talk fest 
and um, somebody, a journalist, Russell Brown, I think it was, asked me the question. He says, what would have happened if one of the songs that you put out when you were with Slash in the United States in the early 90s had gone really big time? What would your life be like? And I says, well, it's pretty simple, really. Her heroin addiction and an early death, just like Kurt Cobain. Yes. Because, you know, I mean, it's... <coughs> It's part of the nature of the beast that the world doesn't reward you for fame, or it does for a very short period of time with a huge amount of money and endless drugs. And it usually gets you. Yeah. So I, I had the good fortune to fail, <laughs> to not succeed. And, and, and the good fortune that I didn't have all my eggs in the rock and roll bar basket because, you know, I'd studied, got my degree, got my PhD. So I'm a classical music scholar as much as I'm a rock musician. Yes. So there are other things that I could do. And then I got teaching positions in the last 20 years until this year, working at the University of Otago, which gave me a lot of resources in terms of studios. So I could continue to write and record to a, yes. a pretty high level uh, and keep exploring what it was that I'm trying to do and keep perpetually studying anything that I think that's worth my time to study, which is, you know, other songwriters and classical musicians, you know. So that that gives me the that has always given me the rocket fuel for the next stage of how, you know, how am I going to approach writing this song or I've got this poem in front of me because I write all my text first, have done most of this century. And so I've got a poem and you kind of go, well, what music does it need? And where am I going to find it? <laughs> you know, who, who, who do I need to listen to or whose score do I have to go gazing into to find the right language to express that particular poetic idea? And it just, it's endless. It's, it's kind of like, um, you know, most of the century since Potboiler right up to Dunedin Spleen, which comes out in a couple of weeks' time. Um, you know, I write poems through the year and then I go on holiday about the 23rd of December and I went back to work at the end of January and between the 23rd of December and the end of January, I've written an album. Yes. You know, um, I'm about to embark on one of those going down the, the rabbit hole for the next album. But, you know, and it, it's just adventure tourism. <laughs> <laughs> for me, you know, it's kind of like there's a poem and there's no greater thrill irrespective of fame or money that you might make from it but you know when I sit down with my computer and there's a poem and then at six o'clock in the evening and I push save and push play and a song that wasn't there at six o'clock in the morning is now there this is just an amazing feeling that you, it's a drug yeah <laughs> and you know I'll, I'll do that as long as I am able to do it because it's it's just a, a massive thrill and that keeps me going uh fame and fortune well whatever you know i mean that probably won't come until well after i'm dead 
if it comes at all, but you know, I'm still doing it, and that in itself is an amazing thing. When you brought out your, you brought out a compilation, didn't you? Sort of 2003 time. Did that? Yeah. Did, what was the kind of the the motivation for that? Because that was back on Flying Nun Records, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I presume they thought it was time. I can't really remember, but yes. Um. Yeah, I mean, <coughs> excuse me. It was an interesting process. Um, Hamish McDowell, who did the liner notes, kind of like facilitated the whole thing. And he connected up with five different Valence fans and says, right, we can fit 18 or 19 songs on this record. Draw up your list of which songs you think ought to be on it. And so, you know, and then we viewed the five lists from five different Valence fans and they were depressingly similar. Yeah. <laughs> like there might have been one song different that was a pet love of the person that compiled the list but the other the rest of them was kind of like well you know it's a no-brainer isn't it you know death and maiden has to be on there lying in state has to be on there you know da, 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 da. um and a bit of input from a late input from an american fan that says well you know one of the most astonishing things is cd jimmy jazz and me with all its movements which was quite a compliment in its own way. It's a very symphonic song. And so, you know, that's how it happened. And to a certain extent, you know, it's uh, it's a pretty good compilation. We tried to make sure that we had at least two songs off every record that right. we put out up until then, right the way up until over the moon um, so yeah it was it was kind of a, not necessarily a kind of complete best of but a, as best of a retrospective of what we'd done up until that point and it's pretty scary to actually be talking to you now that 17 years later and 17 years on that record, that's five or so albums six albums worth of material later it's you know it's an ongoing story so yeah Yes. So which, yeah, which brings you, which brings us to, to the, the almost the modern the moment. Well, it just brings us to the moment. But then the new release, which is coming out actually this month, isn't it? Yeah. So when did that start? When did you start writing and recording that? Oh, this is a strange story that we're even talking about. This I wrote an album's worth, as I explained, a set a bunch of poems, 12, between 2012-13, and we tracked them. Um, and we never got around to finishing it just because of time constraints with work and everything else. And then the summer of 13-14, I wrote another album's worth, and we went, oh, what the hey, let's just track those as well and make it a... Right? So we've got two albums ready to go, and later on we thought, well... Might as well, it's the 10th Valane studio album, so we might as well make it a double album as a statement of intent. Um, and then the whole tally-ho thing kicked in, which I'm not sure if you know about, but it was, um, we got some, Roy Colbert, who's the godfather of the Dunedin music scene, always had an idea of doing a bunch of, Dunedin or flying fly, but Dunedin songs with symphony orchestra. Right. And we got some money from Creative. He got some money 
to do it. And so we went, yeah, okay, right. So let's do it. And we had the original singers were involved, Shane Carter and Mark Phillips, myself, David Kilgour. Uh, we also had some student singers recently graduated of mine that sang some of them. We also had a soprano international Annalise that sang a bunch of the tunes as well, which was kind of like, it was like a proving a theory that people didn't necessarily like flying nun music because they couldn't get past the voice. Because right. the voice the voice is imperfect. This was Roy's theory, and it's a, it was a good theory. Um, and so, well, let's take Pink Frost and put it in the mouth of an international soprano. <laughs> and let's take Randolph's Going Home after Shane had just been on stage singing She Speeds and give it to a, a young woman to sing. And it, the town hall was full and it just destroyed the place. It was like this huge success. Standing ovation, like standing in front of a blast furnace. Of <laughs> so anyway, it was such a success that then the orchestra, who I was sitting on the board at the time, immediately says, "We shall do another one." And says, okay, as it turned out, it got delayed, but that took from 2017, and then there was a third one in 2019. So, orchestrated 60 odd different songs for these shows, and when you're talking about the man hours for an orchestration, maybe over a hundred per song. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like I've been through 2014 to 2019. I did nothing with any spare hour I had except to be on the computer and orchestrating these massive things and putting on these concerts. And so the, the whole Finishing the mixing just kind of like took a long time. And so you're really dealing with a, with a product, an album that was written in 12, 13. Blimey. And so if it, has any, if, it, if it gels with any resonance in, in terms of uh, current events and the rest of it, then um, a lot of it was prophecy anyway. So <laughs> it seems to have come true to a certain extent. Yes, absolutely. But you must be sort of very relieved to see the, the project sort of coming out and you being able to sort of draw a, a certain line underneath it. Yeah, it's it's a really weird feeling, you know, because it's a big body of work. It's 19 songs um, and they're great songs. and. We threw a lot of money at it and we got it mastered at, at Abbey Road. And, um, to all intents and purposes, I, mean, I haven't even heard it. <laughs> been mastered, you know, um, <laughs> which is pretty ironic, but actually that's the way I work. I usually don't listen to a record that I've made released for a decade afterwards. Yes. I'm too, I'm too busily invested in, in trying to dream up the next one. Um, is it a bit like do is it a bit like your PhD that you would just never read it again until twenty years later because you just think God it's so odd. Yeah, pretty similar. Yeah, I have had had reason to read my PhD again recently. Did you um, did you find it like embarrassing? No, it's good. Um, 
naive in its scope because it was 1993 <laughs> that I finished it, you know, and that's 27 years ago. And what I know about what I've, I know through having taught for so long, I mean, and doing postgraduate supervision, like supervising other people's PhDs. Yes. You know, I, I'm, I'm still, I'm supervising a PhD student at the moment on, you know, and we're tackling Beethoven, for God's sake, you know, as if something new could be written about that. And my Lord, yes, there's quite a bit new that can be written about Beethoven. Thank you. Um, you, you just get better. You know, that's that's the nature of it. And, you know, when universities try and tout this lifelong learning thing, but it is actually true. You know, once you've got the tools to learn, then you just keep learning. And it's a it's an exponential curve. You just keep doing it. You know? Yes. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's uh, it's going to be wonderful to, to, to be able to draw a line under it. Um, <laughs> and to be able to draw a line under a whole bunch of things. I mean, the very first song is called None of These Chords, which I love very much. And most of the music was written in 1981. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a riff, you see. It was, a, it was a pet riff that I loved to play, but it was so kind of difficult, and I wasn't such a good singer back then that I could never, I couldn't play it play the, the chord progression and, and invent a melody over the top of it. Right. And it wasn't until I wrote a poem, you know, that it's kind of like an ode to music anyway, and I went, my God, that's perfect for that riff. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you type, type the riff into the computer so you don't have to and then invent the melody around the pre-existing poem that you've got, you know. None of these chords I own. I only gave them temporary shelter. Like yes. piles of bones, I found them stacked in dusty corners. It's kind of, it's an ode to that whole, the whole lifelong learning thing of scouring libraries and looking at scores and studying things and picking the bones out of other people's work and making your own out of it. And it takes years and years and years of dedication to do it. And uh, so, yeah, so you you want to talk about delayed gratification the first song <laughs> the first song that well, comes out is 39 years old musically <laughs> wow that is kind of one one sort of holistic journey isn't it really <laughs> it's pretty funny i mean it was a very joy division inspired riff from the first song from the first joy division album because they kind of had a lot of that sort of chug eight dun -dun -dun stuff going on and driving things but a lot of really interesting kind of little detours in the way that they put the harmony together. So that was my response to Joy Division in 1981, which is when it hit New Zealand. Yes. After the fact. And uh, so that riff just, you know, was something that I'd dust off every half decade and play around with and enjoy myself playing with it, but never got a song out of it. So... Does it mean then, when you... Because you said you haven't listened to the final remix or the final remastered but does it sort of hold together as a body of work because it's, it's a double album isn't it yeah yeah it's it's actually a pretty condensed period of time of uh, really we're talking about maybe 18 months you know um around the way the way i saw the world as it was you know, I, I wrote, I mean, two of the songs that, that I did really rough and ready videos for, AWCWD, 
and um, Church and State were both written in response to the 2012 presidential election. Right. Blimey. Which was, you know, and it was because I can remember where I was in 2008 when Obama got elected after eight years of Bush and endless wars and all the rest of it and all the promises that he made. In 2012, and when he got re-elected, it was kind of like, well, at least the other schmuck didn't win. It was completely different, you know. Yes, I know, I know, I know the feeling. Tear down your cheek of, my God, you know, the great nation has elected its first black president and then, oh, well, whatever, never mind. You know, it was just such a disappointment and it's kind of, and, and the fact that he couldn't do anything. He couldn't do anything in four years. He couldn't do anything in eight years. And in fact, I did an interview on the 17th of May, 2016. And it was before, before Trump had even won the nomination. But I said, if he wins the nomination, you look out because he's going to win. And here are the reasons why. It's because they elected a hope and change candidate that couldn't change anything. And, and, and the people are going to look at this candidate, who's just like, may as well be a Gandhi or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> subcontinental family of perpetual rulers, and this guy who's not politics and who is promising to do to try and change some things. And they're going to vote for him. And they bloody well did. <laughs> You know, and that's not, I'm not voicing support, but I was just looking at, you know, so it's a window into the world and the way that it runs and the way that I saw it running back then. And I haven't really changed my mind either. Um, is that it, it is still kind of like a, you know, a deep state military industrial complex type of thing, you know. All right, I've invented this new weapon. I deserve to be paid for it. Therefore, it has to be used. It's just kind of like this insane logic that runs through everything. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, every every I, I stand by every word of that record. Um, and a lot of the a lot of what the record's about too is is probably more true now than it was then. Which is a lot of it's about economics. You know, a song like a man selling poems on Karanga Happy Road, which is a main thoroughfare in Auckland. A friend of mine, Dave Merritt, um, you know, and he stencils the damn things and then he self-binds them in old banana boxes and he sells them for five bucks on the street <laughs> and tries to make his living from that. And you've got all the rest of the hustle and bustle of Auckland and the people rushing to their meetings and getting pissed off because they were 10 minutes over the parking limit and got their cars got towed and you know yes and the poor guy at the running the, the hindu guy at the superette you know comes over and barters a packet of cigarettes for a poem you know and it's kind of like it, this is all an interrogation of economics and really worth which is the working title of the next album that i'm working on because if COVID has taught us nothing then it's taught us to question worth Really, seriously, it's, it's raising questions of worth, you know. Um, and to a certain extent, financially, right now, I'm worthless. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, if I'm expecting to, to put food on the table on the basis of the records that I'm, I'm making and made, then I'm going to starve to death. You know, I have to do something else. 
Yes. I've, I've always found something else to do that can earn money in order to do something that's worth something. <laughs> but, you know, the whole the whole world's kind of in this vortex at the moment of kind of like, you know, shit, really? That's worth money, but is it worth anything? Yes. We're changing. We are. I mean, you know, absolutely. They, they suddenly managed to find trillions of pounds to keep everything, the party, so-called, you know, the party as in... not the political party but the party as in the world going but then you wonder why they suddenly yes managed and find trillions to keep it going but you know is it going to be able to last doing it like this yeah it's all all a question of which parts of it are going to keep going and which parts (laughs) you know and uh which parts of business as usual are probably don't have a great future you know, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean. I read all the time. One of the best things that I read recently is Nassim Nicholas Taleb, anti-fragile, great book, and just the pure concept of it, which he's very self-effacing and takes it all the way back to to Seneca. Um, but yeah, it, it's what things, and you only have. It's just a lens to look at. What is fragile? Well, you know, if business as usual just carries on, then it looks like a really good investment, like the cruise ship industry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? But if you inject the black swan, like a, an unforeseen event like COVID into it, then it's just kind of like it's a bunch of rust buckets waiting to be scrapped. Yeah. And it's over. And it probably will be over forever. The airline industry is the same. I mean, these things are, are essentially fragile. Yes, you know they one upset, one major upset turns them into just bankruptcy like that. So you know, um, yeah, I, I stand by the record. I, I've moved on and, and read and thought and think a lot, but actually, a lot of the stuff that I've been writing recently is still around those sorts of principles of what are things worth. You know, um, you know, and some of those songs were incredibly difficult to write and took years. I mean, a Wall Street hooker's deathbed I, I worked on for, and it was the first draft of it was written after a news report on Fox News, sort of October in 2008 or September or something, about how much money a Wall Street hooker makes in a night. And I don't can't remember the name of the presenter, but you know one of the conveyor belt of pretty blonde things that are probably fifty or sixty years old, but that's the nature of you know. And she was going, "Well, good for them," you know. And then two weeks later, Lehman Brothers went over, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and it was kind of like, "Well, let's just extrapolate." And it took a lot of years of drafting because I really kind of had to try and inhabit the mind. Um, it's like a browning monologue in a way is that at the very last there's a a whole kind of like a value system that even on her deathbed she wouldn't repudiate which is I've never valued anything free and pity is so don't pity me it's kind of like a bloody minded and, and at that point you know 
the character becomes a saint. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, the circumstances of existence essentially foisted a lack of free will upon her to do this, to make shitloads of money. And she ends up dying in a grotty flat because the money's all gone. She has no family. Yeah, my God. You know, so the, the amount of work that's gone into this record is, is considerable in terms of years of... Because what I do is that I, I write... I call them brain farts, right? Because they occur all the time. You know, you see a news article and there's an idea. And I try and jot it down as quickly as I can of, you know... It's a title, a Wall Street Hooker's Deathbed. And then it takes, you go through the draft and it just annoys the hell out of you because it's not saying what you want it to say or it's not saying anything or it's not drawing any real empathy or understanding. And then you just keep tweaking it and then one day it goes click. And then I write the music for it. But these things can take, take years, years and years and years of drafting and redrafting. And there's the new record that I'm working on at the moment you know, wonderful thing of computers. I went back, it was about the death of my harmony teacher. And I went back to the very first draft and it's up to draft 19 and I'm just about happy with it. Uh, the first draft was 2009. It was the day after he died. Right. You know, but in order to, to capture that knot, veritable knot of emotion of, uh, finality and futility, <laughs> you know, but with an immense swathe of humour that was typical of the man himself. You know, you can't be happy. You can't just jot that down, do what, do what, and write some chords underneath it. It's a lot of work to work on these texts and then to find the music for it. I don't know whether I will be able to find the music for it, but, you know, so that the Dunedin Spleen is the product of hours and hours of drafting the lyrics and then actually considerably short periods of time writing the music for them. Yes. And did it feel kind of strange when it got the sort of, was it remastered in Abbey Road? Did it feel like you had to somehow let go of it or was it not quite that emotional? Uh, no, no, no. It was, well, it wasn't remastered. It was mastered. We We mixed it in Dunedin, um, and we had, we'd done some preliminary mixes and they just weren't up to it really. Uh, and then we devoted July, which is our, was our, well, for me anyway, the break between the two semesters of teaching and we found three weeks where I wasn't ha having to mark stuff and whatever and we just went hard at it every day and really improve the mixes no end. And then it was a case of, well, I've got some money in the in the kit bag, so let's just invest whatever, $6,000 to get it mastered by a pro, a really good guy uh, whose name escapes me at the moment at Abbey Road. And Frank. Because it's the, Frank, yeah. Can't remember his surname, but Frank somebody. Yeah. Arkwright. Arkwright, that's the one, yeah. He, he did Joy Division and stuff way back in the day so obviously a well you know great set of ears um and um 
Yeah, and it, it, it sounds a million bucks. So I have heard the, re, the mastered version. I haven't heard it on vinyl yet, which according to D Darren, the drummer who got the test pressing, says it's just another level again because it's vinyl. It's just this warm yeah. surround, big woolly blanket of sound <laughs> type thing going on, which vinyl tends to be. So I, I look forward to hearing it on vinyl. Yes, absolutely. So look, just one last, one last question then. I mean, if you could have said something to an 18 year old self starting out in your creative journey, I mean, if there's, was there, or is there something or a couple of things that you would have just kind of whispered in their ear as they, as they started stumbling into that exciting period of enthusiastic naivety that sometimes is what an 18 year old can feel like? Um, oh, Lordy. I mean, I probably wouldn't say anything. I mean, I've been teaching 18 year olds yeah. for 25 years. <laughs> I realize, or, yes, I realize that. <laughs> You know, and and out of that crop of them, you know, there's, you know, three or four that are carrying on um, that are still making records. I mean, Anthony Tonnen's probably the head one at the moment, um, whose work that... I kind of admire enough that I've orchestrated a couple of his songs or one of his songs, mm. two of his songs, you know, for these Tally Ho concerts. Um, and he's a great performer and he's a great songwriter and he's a fantastic lyricist and he's an influence on me as much as I'm an influence on him. Yes. Um, um, so, you know, but, you know, I know, you know, I grew up with a bunch of talented kids, you know, that formed a band. You know, the, one of them was the first boyfriend of our youngest daughter, and they did. They kind of we had them playing support for us, and they were quite slick and quite good. And they made a record, and had uh, here we go, we've made an album, and da 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 da. Within two months, they're broken up. You know, it's because to to do this, you have to almost be afflicted. <laughs> yes this is true talent, talent's got nothing to do with it you know because you can have and that's the thing you were talking about about the road destroying people and they do two albums or they do three albums and they spend the rest of their life you know television is still on the road playing the best of the three albums that they made well, bugger that <laughs> you know I'm, I'm on to you know my 11th, 12th, 13th album. Yes. And on, you know, I don't want to be that. And and it's, you have, you absolutely, I mean, the whole thing of waking up in the morning after you've released an album and go, I don't have any new songs in the cupboard, but yet my record company is telling me I have to have an album to them inside by the end of the month that professionalism i talked about earlier and that kind of like right that's what it is this is a job right yes well it's a career it's not a job a job you'd go and do 40 hours a week and you get your paycheck and then your time's your own if you've got a career like i have then you're 24 7 i'm quoting jordan peterson at the moment <laughs> you know is it you're, you're really like everything that you do in your life is to a certain extent channeled towards the next 
song and whether it be studying music, whether it be reading a book, whether it be gardening and painting the house, which is what I'm doing at the moment. I'm a landscape gardener and house painter at the moment. Um, but that time is constant figuring while you're doing a menial task towards that moment when you can go, right, I've got a vision for how that's going to work now and go and into your studio room and, and and make it so so it's it's kind of like for young people it's kind of like you try you try and i always try to treat every one of them like they could be the next best thing yes and and it's important for i think for people to go through that right um because this is and this is universal i mean i I had my first dental appointment in a while with a new dentist, right? And he says, musician. He says, I learned the piano. He's an Asian guy. He says, of course, all Asian families have to learn the, the piano. Uh, and he's, he said, well, I didn't get very far with it, you know. And I says, well, yeah, but it did its work, you know, which is because you can go to a concert hall and see a concert pianist and you don't feel in any way disempowered by the experience of seeing that because what that is, that guy or that gal playing a Beethoven sonata is the potential that you had that was not able to be realised, mm. you know. But when you see somebody else that managed to go through and have, as I say, the affliction, which it is an affliction, to mm -hmm. dedicate the amount of time necessary to be able to play that Beethoven piano sonata, then that's a, a thing of joy. Springs, you know, no one walks out of a concert hall feeling, oh, fucking lucky bastard, he got all the breaks, you know. <laughs> we don't, you know, it's, um, yeah. It, it, I mean, I try to try to be straight up. I have, I've retired now, I don't teach anymore, but if, you know, with, with teaching teaching university students, you sort of I, last few years I've sort of gone right. Why are we studying harmony in the style of Bach? Okay, well here's the reason: was that I was taught by Englishmen who migrated from, and they were taught by Englishmen. And if you've got a, a class of sixty students in front of you at a university, <coughs> one of you might become a concert pianist, one of you might become an opera superstar one of you might become a conductor and one of you might become this the rest of you with your music degree if you don't be if you're not one of those four or five people in the class that become super famous and proficient at what you do you'll become a church organist <laughs> yeah and the truth that's the truth you know and this is what your education is giving you is the fact is um, all i'm teaching you is to be a musical leader Right, is because you're going to go through this. You're going to have a music degree. You're going to be in a community, some kind of situation, and everybody's going to look to you with regard to music because you know more than all of them put together. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a concert pianist or the next Beethoven, right? But no. you will be a musical leader, and that's a really important thing to be. Right. <laughs> so, um, to to do rock and roll, yeah, faff about and it, good, but. And, and have a go. It's really, really important, I think, especially at that age, you know, because, you know, it's what Jung calls the messianic stage, you know, where we, we're young and we think we can change the world. And 
it dawns on most people that that's a pretty stupid idea and we shouldn't even try. <laughs> and most people then just get normal and get a job and get a family and a mortgage and da 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 da. And the fact they played in a rock and roll band once upon a time is actually a source of embarrassment that they'll probably get teased on at their 50th birthday. The rest of us, the few of us that kind of continue to do it, is because we're afflicted, is because we can't not do it. It's just not within out the fiber of our being to be. Um, Adorno calls it the temptation to silence, which is very great. The temptation <laughs> to silence is enormous because, hey, I don't have to be anybody. I can just be a regular schmo and go to the rugby match on Saturday and go and have a pint at the pub. You know, I can't be that. You know, it, it's, you have to actually take that on. That's a very big thing to take on. But yeah, I am Graham Downs. I've written all these hundreds of songs over 40 years and I'm still doing it. You know, it, it's a big responsibility to take your own selfhood. <laughs> yes. And keep pushing it to the next level and keep evolving. And most people can't be bothered. And so most people give it up quite sensibly to be honest, <laughs> and they do something else, you know, but they still, it's not wasted. That experience is not wasted. <clears throat> and still, it comes down to the fact that when you see the great people that, you know, and you notice it when people pass, like Leonard Cohen or, you know, Lou Reed, you know, recent time, David Bowie, that the sort of realisation of the en enormous aspect of that cultural achievement in a lifetime really is something amazing and the primary emotion that we attach to is gratitude uh, yes absolutely. <laughs> you know is my god now now that so and so is dead what would the world be like without these people having made the incredible sacrifice to turn themselves into this artistic machine that they became over this massive period you know, um, so yeah, I mean, I just encourage them. <laughs> I mean, you're 18, you want to have a go? Well, have a go then. And I'll, you know, as far as I'm concerned, my education, both within the industry, like going to the United States and making a record in LA with a producer and learning how to do pre production, which is sort of like a word that we didn't even know existed in Dunedin in the early 80s. What's that? You just turn up in a studio and you make a record. Well, no, it's a bit more complicated than that. You know, is that you can only make one record. As Joe Ciccarelli was always talking about the record. You know, yes. and you can do it at 91 BPM or 92 or 93 BPM or 94 or 89. Is, that's just with regard to tempo. And you settle on one. You settle on the one that makes the drummer and the bass sound like it. And the words and the basic thing. Everything works. Everybody else, the guitarists, session musicians can just cope. But, you know, like trying to find and settle on the one performance that you're going to commit to record is kind of like a, wow, that actually takes some discipline. Yeah. It takes some training how to think about how you're going to achieve that end. Um, so, you know, I've passed down, a, a, you know, the school of hard knocks and ignorance, but also the, the, the training and the informal training and I pass it down to young people so that they 
because you know everyone knows the agony of walking away from a recording studio already hating the record that they've just made but they've spent all their money <laughs> right then, so the, the whole thing always comes down to money that you've got a budget don't blow it you do as as many things as you can do for free in pre-planning what it is that you're going to do so that when you spend that money every dollar counts and it's a record that you'll still be proud of in 40 years time yes. which i by and large am for most of them and you know. So yeah, that's that's the literal truth of it is that it, it comes down to economics. You know, you know, it, it's you know the industry is predicated on completely different things of the type of you know your flash in the pan, you're the you're the flavor of the month, whatever, and you get to make that one single that goes and pays a shitload of money, and you make one record and then second record well to quote Randy Newman every every record that I'm making is like a record that I've made just not as good <laughs> <laughs> yes um you know so yeah give it a go and I'll help you any way shape I can it won't necessarily make you into the next rock star because it's it's more than that it's, it's a whole kind of fortitude and attitude and a a hunger that you can't teach it has to be in the person already to communicate and to work things out which is true of every great artist that's kind of like that we still bother about is that they've been determined to find out what the hell does this mean you know? <laughs> yeah how do i make sense of this you know um so yeah i, I do I've, i'm very proud of my teaching career as much as it's finished but you know and, and but but that's it you know it's kind of like and the really best students that you have who make their first record as part of the course and you know you're talking to them the day after they've submitted it and they go i'm already thinking about the next one right you've got it you've got the, the forces <laughs> strong in this one you know you'll probably keep going but you're you know you're the one in a hundred students that is going to do that yes um, yeah no. it's just it's the way that it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely well look this has been amazing thank you graham you're welcome it's well, been a good chat <laughs> well thank you so much and when i do the show i'll i'll send you a link and then you can put it in your you know, wherever you like to put these things, social media, you know, platforms. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll um, I do a radio show on Radio New Zealand every month, so the next one's Wednesday week. So if you send me a link, I'll send it to them, and maybe they can put it up on their website as well. Oh, that'll be amazing. Um, I, um, it's just you know, an extension. I mean, this type of thing I try and do on my radio shows talk about music and try and treat it seriously. Well, absolutely. Especially talk about stuff that's been around for a long time and people still engage in, you know. That's kind of, that blows my mind that, you know, because just it, everything shrinks down to the barest minimum, you know. And so why the, why the hell is, is my, as a 12-year-old, essentially my step-granddaughter now with a reconstituted why is she singing jolene at the top of her voice around the house <laughs> but as, you know, as, as uh, waylon as waylon jones said is that what hank would do mm, uh yeah 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's that's our job, is to pick through the great ones and see what they've done and how they've done it and just keep storing those lessons away and trying to do something that's half as good or even as good. Yes, well, it's, it's, it's always good to keep shooting high. Aim mm-hmm. for the stars. That's the main thing. Well, look, thank you ever so much. This has been amazing. Thank you f- for this. It was good. Okay, take care there, and I'll, I'll keep in touch. Okay. Let's, um, let's enjoy the rest of the year. Bye. <laughs> and that is how you say goodbye with a, yeah, very firm... <laughs> Anyway, slightly. Anyway, that was also the end of the interview. Thank you ever so much for uh, listening, if you still are. Well done. And a big thank you to Graham Downs from the Verlaines um, for that. If you want to contact me for some random reason, make it positive, though. Um, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do at C86show. Also, these have all been archived and podcast, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Pod. Been. So there you go. This has been David Eastall. Have a great week. <laughs>